Well, this evening will be our last sermon in 1 Corinthians for this calendar year. Um, yeah, uh, next couple of weeks, Corey and the kids and I are going to be off on, on a little holiday together. We're going to have a couple different guest preachers. One of them, Elliot Ritzma, is here in the back, incognito, until now! No, he's going to be here uh, sharing with us, and Jeff Flint will also be sharing one of the messages while I'm away. So uh, I think they're preaching out of James and Revelation, respectively, so it'll be really interesting. And then when I come back on the 30th, we're going to start our series back up in Exodus, like we left off last fall, and that'll carry us through uh, right up until Advent season. So kind of in a little shift here. Um, and since January, we've been journeying through 1 Corinthians, a series I titled Following Jesus in the Real World. And I titled it that because Paul is dealing with things as they really are, not in ideal circumstances. In the early 50s AD, the Apostle Paul planted a church in Corinth, which was a cosmopolitan city uh, in the southern part of Greece. Yes, it was in Greece, but it was actually a Roman colony with Roman governance. And as I said many times, Corinth, you have to remember, um, it was a Roman colony. It was a seaport where all of this commerce and trade is going through because people would take their goods through from the Aegean Sea to the Ionian Sea through this little land bridge. They would actually unload these ships and take the packages, before they had a canal, uh, take the packages across land. It was actually cheaper and shorter to do it that way than go all the way around the southern tip of the landmass. And whenever commerce changes ships or uh, modes of transportation, there's always a tariff, right? So lots of money is changing hands in Corinth, lots of influence from other cultures when you have a seafaring port, so you've got ideas from other lands coming in and other religious ideas all coming in and mixing in Corinth. Eighteen months after Paul planted his church in Corinth, he went around other places, visiting other churches he had planted, planting new churches. And 18 months later, he began to hear reports in a couple different ways. One, orally, he heard reports from this lady Chloe and her people, her family. Uh, she was given some reports of some not-so-good things happening in the Corinthian church. And then he also received a letter, or multiple letters, we don't know, from the Corinthian congregation asking some questions about, hey, what do we do about such and such? And um, and this kind of thing. And so the letter that we've been studying, what we call 1 Corinthians, is the letter Paul wrote in response to these reports. Today we're going to be focusing on a few verses right in the middle of chapter 7. In weeks prior, we have looked at the verses before our section tonight. We've looked at the verses after our section tonight. And what we've discovered is that in the face of severe famine and some strange views about marriage and the human body um, held by some of the Corinthian church members, Paul gives pastoral counsel to the church about all kinds of different relationships. But here in the middle, Paul addresses the crux of his argument. And I think everything else he says in chapter 7 is based on this central point. He addresses the centrality of our calling. To follow Jesus. Let's discover this a little more. Would you stand with me as we read 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let them walk. And so I direct all the churches. Was any one of you called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. 
Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers and sisters, each one is to remain with God in that calling in which he was called. Lord, uh, this is a weird word. Um, we don't typically debate the merits of circumcision or uncircumcision for religious reasons anymore. Um, slavery, besides uh, sexual slavery and uh, things that we think happen in other places, uh, isn't something that we deal with in our own households right now, in Bellingham at least. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us get behind what Paul is trying to say. And would you speak to us um, a good word uh, for our time and our place? Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> and if you're thinking, what on earth is he going to do with this one, right? Um, good news is we're done talking about sex. We've talked about sex out of 1 Corinthians here for several weeks in a row, um, but we're still going to talk about penises, so circumcision. No, just kidding. Um, yeah, it's a weird-sounding passage. I mean, what on earth is Paul talking about here? We're talking about circumcision in, what, in the same argument. Then he's bringing up slavery, and I'm wondering, what does that have to do with one another? And if we were to discover what that has to do with each other, what does it have to do with you and me in the 21st century in Bellingham? There's really two things I want to accomplish in preaching this particular text this evening. First, I want to clarify what I think this text meant and means uh, so that we don't abuse this text like it has been abused in the past, primarily by people in positions of power used to oppress people in lower positions of power. Just remain where you're at. Don't try and better yourself. Don't try and rise up. Okay? That's how that's been abused in the past. So that's one of my goals, is to dispel any way that we could possibly misuse this text. Second, I want to share the good news of Jesus that I see in this text. And it's the foundation of Paul's thinking for this entire passage. So we'll get to that as well. Okay, now as often is the case with looking at ancient writings like this, we have to kind of go behind the text a little bit. We have to kind of do a little bit of digging. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Roman Republic coming to an end in the year 27 AD, I'm sorry, BC, that was the year that um, <clears throat> Caesar Augustus became Rome's emperor in a new age called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Uh, that, that term, the Peace of Rome, came into to use when uh, uh, Caesar Augustus took power. For Roman citizens, it was a season of wealth and prosperity. And the dominant philosophy up until that time, there were actually three dominant philosophies. One was uh, typical of Aristotle was that the world was uncreated. That means it always existed and it always would exist. The second major view was that the world or the universe was created by some creator and ultimately would be destroyed. And the third view, kind of platonic and philo in particular like this one, was that the world was created and technically could be destroyed, but there was a creator who sustained it, okay? And those were kind of the, the main ways that people thought of the world. 
But once the Pax Romana came and the Roman Empire set up shop, people began to, at least the thinkers and the elite, they began to have disposable time and income and they were flush with cash, and they began to explore the arts, and life got a little bit more comfortable. And so what happened was, the public perception of the universe and the philosophy of life was this, that everything is permanent. And we should build things to last forever. This idea was enforced in the architecture of the city as well. Things were built to last. City planners laid out the city in shapes of temples and in holy array. Uh, the building materials that were used were often uh, made to last. And so the idea was we're going to um, use propaganda to tell people that the Pax Romana and the rule of Augustus is so good that uh, we're, we're going to communicate this with rhetoric and we're going to communicate it with the very buildings that we build and the public spaces that we build. In fact, ancient Roman documents tell of architects being required to take philosophy courses as part of their trade so that their work would reflect this idea of permanence and the glory of Caesar Augustus and his empire. These people truly believed that they were living in the ultimate age, the ultimate time to be alive. And when people begin to view the now, their current situation, as the end-all, be-all, when people are so invested in making the, their own happiness the ideal for life, well, their efforts, their energies are all bent on enforcing that idea of making themselves happy. Now, of course, first century Rome and Corinth and this idea of upward mobility and materialistic permanence sounds a lot like the American dream. Uh, th this lure of upward mobility at the cost of our health, at the cost sometimes of our integrity, um, uh, and oftentimes at the cost of our sanity is something that we in the industrialized world often struggle with, don't we? That's the message out there all the time. Both Rome, Western Europe, Corinth, North America, and many other industrialized cities find themselves, we find ourselves, at odds with the vision of the New Testament, where we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be investing ourselves and our lives in, in adding value to our culture and adding beauty to the things that we do. But the world at the same time, according to the New Testament, isn't ultimately our home, at least not the way it is. We're to seek the good of our neighbors and our loved ones, but we know that there's more, according to Scripture, than what we can see and taste and touch and feel. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to 1 Corinthians. Before we dig into the specific case studies that Paul presents with circumcision and slavery, let's talk about the word calling. Most often, when we use the word calling in our Christian culture, or even in just the secular in, in the world, uh, we think in terms of vocation, don't we? Partly that's because the Latin word vocare uh, is where we get calling from. It means vocation. But when Paul uses that word, he doesn't use the word calling uh, to describe what you do professionally or what you do with the purpose of your life. When Paul uses it, he draws from a Greek word called kaleo. Can you say kaleo? Kaleo, you just said calling in Greek, and that means different, something different than vocation. When Paul is using this word kaleo, he's talking most often about being called by someone, being called by Jesus, 
That's very different than me talking about my calling as being a pastor or your calling as a teacher or a, or a bus driver or, or, or an accountant or whatever it is, okay? And, and what Paul's point is here is that some people were called by Jesus to follow him when they were circumcised. And yet other people were called by Jesus to follow him when they were uncircumcised. And some people were called to follow Jesus when they were in slavery. And some people were called when they were freed people. And his point is, it doesn't matter. Like, Jesus didn't wait for slaves to be free and circumcised people to be uncircumcised or vice versa before he would call them. His call is what gives you value. Now, the reality in Corinth was that certain types of people had better opportunities for social advancement. Remember what I said about the the Roman and Corinthian view of permanence. People were constantly thinking, how can I better my situation? How can I be happier, richer, wealthier, um, more politically powerful? Okay, that was, I know it sounds just like, I don't know, our country, right? Okay, but that's common in, in, in societies where they're, econo- they're economically well-to-do. I mean, that's a common issue. Okay. So in Corinth, um, men, well, and women too, but let's talk about men because we're talking about circumcision here. Uh, men would go to the gym and work out naked. And they would go to the baths after those gym workouts naked. And they were public and everything was out in the open. So if you were circumcised, it was kind of obvious. And if you were uncircumcised, it was kind of obvious. Okay, I don't need to go... Into, into that. But what you do need to know is that Jews were in particularly, uh, they were looked down upon. And Bruce Winter writes about young men who were students in schools of rhetoric. Rhetoric was the big thing in those eight. In, in fact, if you read um, the Confessions of St. Augustine, you'll find out, you know, how arrogant this young man was. He was a master uh, of, of oration and rhetoric. And anyway, so it was a big deal to be good at rhetoric. And these guys would go to these schools and the reason you would do that is because you could become a sophist, you could uh, become a lawyer, you could become a politician, or just like a well-known orator, uh, even, a, even an actor, a comedian, you could make a big life for yourself, be well-known in public. So they would go to these schools, and they would work under a master, and part of their education, which I think is kind of cool, it's way more holistic than our education, was going to the gym. So they go to the gym together, they work out together, and there, you know, everybody sees who's got what, and, uh, and then they would go bathe together. And so if you think of, um, this wasn't my experience, but I know um, my uncle, for example, went to uh, Indiana University, and he's in business, and for him, at that stage, it would have been in the 80s, I guess, fraternities were a big deal. And the fraternity you were a part of would help you. In fact, he's still connected with those people. They would help you get jobs, you know, afterwards. It's all about who you know, right? So in these guilds, um, say there's 50 dudes and they're under this master sophist who's teaching them rhetoric. There's very few, maybe, (coughs) jobs out there. And so they're all competing for these jobs. And some of these guys are circumcised. And the writings that we have just show, they, w- they would call these people dogs, um, worse scum than eunuchs. I mean, these are some of the phrases that we have uh, of how these folks would talk about circumcised people. So, so great was the social pressure that there was a medical procedure known as epispasm, which is 
actually, we, we have all of these manuals, medical manuals. They're kind of scary, actually. I w- I'd love for Chad, actually, to, to, to look at some of these things I've been digging up. But anyway, um, they're really weird. But epispasm was a surgical procedure of, of attaching skin to make one look uncircumcised. And we know that they didn't know anything about bacteria back then, and surgeries were sketchy. So I don't, you'd have to really want to, you'd have to really feel that social pressure to invite someone to touch you in that area and try and sew something on, right? I mean, that's crazy. But, <laughs> but we know that this was common in Corinth, and what Paul is saying is that when you bend to these social pressures, what you're saying as a Christian, like, he, doesn't, he, has, he has no say about what people are doing outside the church, but he knows that there's people in the church who are really worried about this. And he's saying, you might, if you're going to all this work to undo that part of your body, You must not really understand what I've been telling you, that you are God's beloved, and he called you when you were circumcised, and he called these guys when they were uncircumcised, and none of that really matters. And the most important thing in the world is that you're loved by Jesus, so who cares what they think? Amen? Right. Now, that example seems completely archaic, but it happens in all sorts of forms and ways today. Here's one example. I'm a father of three girls, and I've become more and more hyper-aware of the disparity and the double standard between uh, men and women's bodies in media, for example, right? So it is, it is common for a male actor or news anchor to go decades and decades and get fatter and fatter and grayer and grosser and just be fine, but like women have a very short window, and if they're not pretty enough, they go to great lengths to maybe get a little work done and, you know, keep themselves, because it's this completable standard. The the beauty or whatever we define as beauty um, causes people, women get plastic surgery compared to men far more uh, percentage-wise. So, that type of thing, that's just one example. We can think about ways that we obsess about our bodies, the way that we appear to people. And I think Paul would say, you know, none of that really, none of that really matters. What matters is that God calls you the way you are, loves you. Some of the people in the Corinthian church were part of the Jewish synagogue before they became Christians. So now we're talking about uh, b- before we were talking about circumcised people who were embarrassed and they wanted to look more Gentile. But there were another group of people, and we know this, this group of people existed in the Galatian church, for example, who were Jewish before they were Christian, and they were looking at these Gentile converts and saying, hey, you guys, uh, if you really want to be spiritual, really want to be a part of God's family, you need to be circumcised too. Paul says, no, no, you don't get it. Jesus, the creator and Lord of the universe, called you his beloved right where you were. And what matters, argues Paul, is not how much skin you have in certain areas of your body, but whether or not you follow the commandments of God. Now, here's where this gets weird. I'm reading the Bible, and I see quite clearly that one of the commandments of God is to be circumcised if you're a male, eight, you know, eight days older or older. And even, <laughs> even if you're a slave in a Jewish household, you're supposed to get circumcised too. So wait a minute, I thought that was a commandment. I think what Paul is saying, and he's very much in line with Jesus, is that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, right? He came to fulfill the law. Jesus absolutely respected the law. He respected the law enough to die to fulfill it. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial laws. 
that separated Jew from Gentile, clean from unclean. Uh, the way to be part of God's people used to be to be set apart, to be circumcised, to be different in the way that we dress and eat and all of these things. But after Jesus, he says, no, the way to become part of the people of God is to have faith in me. Whether you're Jew or you're Gentile or you eat things that split the hoof or what, you know, all of these kind of things. You can eat pigs now. Isn't that great? I love bacon. But so Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. It's not that he ab abolishes it or doesn't respect it. He just fulfilled it. So we don't have to do that part anymore. And Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial law. That's why when we have church services, we have bread and wine. We don't like kill stuff up here anymore, thank God, right? Uh, we, we, don't, we don't have blood sacrifices anymore. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled that on the cross. And that's really good news for you and me, right? Okay, uh, the third thing, there's three aspects of the law. There's the ceremonial, Jesus fulfilled. There's the sacrificial, Jesus fulfilled. And then there's the ethical law. And that's the part that Paul is talking about. We follow those commandments. So um, things outlined, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, do not commit murder. Well, actually, Jesus said, that was like a stopgap because you guys were killing each other. But really, the ethic behind that law is not to be angry with each other. And, you know, the law says don't divorce or don't commit adultery. But, you know, really the ethic behind that law is not to, to treat other people as sex objects. So when you harbor lust for someone else in your heart, that's committing adultery. So, so th those are the ethics behind the law that, that, um, that we are to, to try and live out. Things that Paul has been talking about in, term, in terms of social ethics and sexual ethics, and all of it summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That, Paul argues, is what is important. Not what the world thinks of you, so remain in your calling to follow Jesus. Don't try and follow some other kind of path to upward mobility, just for the sake of advancing in this world. Now, in the Roman world, the slave population was absolutely massive. And the congregation in the Corinthian church undoubtedly have some, had some members who were slaves. Slavery has uh, taken many different forms over the centuries. And sometimes I hear people argue, you know, slavery in Roman times wasn't that bad. It uh, wasn't like the American South. And I wanted to say the evidence does not support that at all. In fact, in the early years in the Roman Republic, slavery, I mean, slave took all kinds of forms. Pe the Roman armies would go and conquer other lands, and they would just take people. And some women, if they were the right age and beauty, would become sex slaves. Some children and other ladies who were a little bit older would become domestic slaves. And some men, if they were muscular, they either go to the salt mines or the marble mines, or they would go into the arena where they get to fight wild animals to the death or gladiators. So you tell me that's a good way to go? That's a horrible thing. Slavery was horrible. But also, there's a spectrum. Because in the ancient world, there were also philosophers who were slaves, and physicians, and lawyers, and some politicians. And so it, it is difficult, and I think it's dangerous for us to look back thousands of years where none of us ever lived um, and just say it, slavery was like this or slavery was like that. The definition of slavery is that one person or a group of people own another person or another group of people. That is not okay. 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 <clears throat> So, we've got lots of slaves in, in Corinth, and probably some of them are in the church. <coughs> the slave, now here's Paul's point. 
In the Roman world, there were distinct social classes. The lowest social class, the ones looked down upon the most and made fun of the most, were the slave class. Remember, we're talking about upward mobility here. Early on in the Roman Empire, slave revolts were common. Think of the movie Ben-Hur and stuff like that. But by the first century, when, when Paul is writing, Rome institutionalized their evil. And here's what I mean. They made it legal, technically, for slaves to work hard and to buy their freedom. And it sounds like, oh, wow, maybe they're getting a little progressive and they were going to, like, not do slavery anymore. No, that's totally not the reason. The reason was is because if you can give a slave a reason to work hard and to believe that they can earn their freedom, they're not going to revolt. Because if you revolt, you get crucified. So you give them a little hope, a carrot, and many of them did, did get free. In fact, uh, we have a picture of that, Ryan. When Corey and I were in the British Museum a couple years back, we, we went there to see the Egyptian stuff, and then I saw all this first century Roman stuff. I'm like, I'll see you in like 10 hours. But <laughs> this is, a, this is a, a stone found um, on one of the entrance roads into Rome, and oftentimes these roads were lined with tombs. They were just like graveyards. And this is a... Um, a picture of a freedman. This is a man who has earned his freedom. His master is there um, uh, looking on. And the idea is that this slave has earned his freedom. And then what would happen is, oftentimes that slave would take the last name or the surname of the master. And many times it would just remain an employee uh, of, of that master and be able to earn money. And they could never be a Roman citizen, but they could marry a Roman citizen. In fact, some female slaves would often marry uh, the, the, the slave owner after they were freed. So that's kind of an interesting find. Those are quite common. That, that was something that happened um, in the first century. So they legalized this thing. One, so that slaves wouldn't revolt anymore. They would have something to work up toward. And then the second thing is, by the time, let's say, let's say you, you know, Schoon, you bought me when I was like 20 and a strapping lad and I worked for you 20 years. Now I'm 40. And, um, you know, getting a little pudgy, a little tired. I finally earned enough to pay for my freedom. You're like, okay, Chris, you've worked hard for me, and so I pay you all this money, and I'm free. But now I'm like, you know, <laughs> I don't really have any name. I don't really have anywhere to go. Do you think I could just work for you? Uh, sure. And then you take that money, and you go buy another 20-year-old slave. I mean, it was really a win-win for the masters, right? They just reinvest the money into younger, the younger people. Paul is often accused of being too complicit with slavery. Um, and I just want to talk about that just for a second. Uh, Kenneth Bailey, who uh, has spent decades living in the Middle East, has been part of um, some underground Christian groups in, in, in heavy um, Muslim areas. And, and he was commenting on this stuff and saying that when Christianity is in, a, is in a minority and when people are oftentimes violent towards that minority Christian group— um, Saying anything politically subversive or, um, or subversive against the culture, you would never say it in writing. He said only would we talk in hushed tones about things like women's rights, for example, where he lived in the Middle East, uh, about what Paul and, and, and Jesus taught about women's rights. See, we keep that within their group, and they would only say it orally. They would never send emails with the stuff in it. They would never use written documents. And the reason is because if someone were to find that and you're the minority group, they would just put an end to it right away. And his point is that that's probably Paul's situation. You know, if Paul was to lead out with, I'm going to be the great abolitionist of slavery, it would, the Christianity would just be done. Uh, that's, 
it would be known as that group. That's very different than the American South, where Christianity was the dominant religion and should have better known better and stood up for those rights. In fact, so, so that's why those are so different. Slavery in Rome, you've got the minority Christian group that would have been crushed by Rome. In the, in the American South, you've got slave owners who are abusing passages like this, just believing that people ought to stay in their position. But notice what Paul can say in writing. He says something completely legal. He says, if you're able to get your freedom, go for it. Don't stay there. Okay? That's completely legal. His main point is to address people who are looking down on themselves as lesser human beings. So that, that's really his point. He's not talking about the merits of circumcision and uncircumcision, slavery, and, and, free, uh, and being free. He's talking about people who are obsessed with their pecking order in society. The Roman culture, as I said earlier, was set up in such a way that the slave class of people was looked at as being subhuman. It's kind of like the caste system of India that we've often heard so much about. What Paul is saying is this. When Jesus called you, when he rescued you, when he called you his own, you were a slave. You don't need to change your social status to have more value. You can't have more value than being one of Jesus' beloved ones. And some of you, I think, probably need to hear that message. Maybe you're at a point in your life where you are ashamed. Maybe you're disappointed with yourself. Maybe you're disappointed with... You thought you'd have made it further than you are now. Be doing something different than you're doing now. Be more successful than you are now. What Paul would say to you is, beloved one, I, I'm telling you that the Lord called you. And he calls you right now. His own, he called you his beloved right where you're at. So whatever, whatever expectations you're putting on yourself from the world's point of view, those are irrelevant. I cannot possibly love you any more than I love you right now. The world as we know it will fade away. And the coming king of the kingdom that's coming to replace that world, he thinks you're precious and he thinks you're priceless. No matter what car you drive or what career you've got or how you think you've screwed things up for yourself or somebody else. Far from advocating slavery, Paul's point is that your social standing is not the highest calling. So don't be anxious about it. You're called by Jesus, and that's the best thing you can be called. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there were those who were born free, but they were just poor. And one way that you could better your position, if you were just poor and free, would be to become a slave of somebody who was rich and powerful. Okay? So we're talking about, say, the poor and free person who has some very special skills. Maybe their intellect is high, or maybe they have some kind of training um, that is lucrative. And they go to work for someone in the senator class, for example, or the equestrian class in Rome. These are high-class movers and shakers. Listen to a quote from a man who sold himself into slavery during the reign of Emperor Nero, which is just a little bit past when Paul is writing. I went into slavery to please myself, and now I hope I live such a life that no one can jeer at me. 
So think about, uh, you know, here's this poor guy begging on the street, and, you know, he's a little bit higher technically than a slave, but people, I mean, he's just like begging on the street, and anyone who's anyone does, looks right past him, or maybe humors him with a little coin, right? But now he's the slave of, say, some powerful politician or great person, and he flanks that person, and he's in, maybe in charge of managing that person's estate, and so he goes to the dinner parties that that person goes to and sits at the table further down that that person sits at and drinks the fine wines and eats the choice meats and never wants for the little things that he used to want for all the time. He continues in this writing, I am a man among men. I walk about bareheaded. He doesn't have to cover up. I owe nobody a brass farthing. I've never been to the courts. Poor people used to always get drugged into courts because it was an unjust system. No one has ever said to me in public, pay me what you owe me. I have bought a few acres. I've collected a little capital. I, have, uh, I feed 20 bellies and a dog. I ransomed my fellow slave to preserve her from indignity. So this guy's so well off as a slave in a high-class house that he's actually helping other slaves. Okay? And it goes on and on like this. Now, obviously, this man sold himself into a very influential family. And he was, in reality, though, owned by another human being. And again, that sounds archaic. Um, not many of us are going to go sell ourselves into slavery. I don't even know if that's much of a possibility right now, or at least in the context that we're talking about here. But people do, don't we, get lured by the promises of wealth and the promises of status and the promises of power offered by working in a prestigious firm or that growing company that requires just a little more of your time each month that goes by. And there's always someone a little younger and hungrier nipping at your heels. At first, it's exciting to be young and to feel valued, working long hours, flowing with accolades. Oh, you're so good. You're always on time. You always get things done. But after a while, you begin to feel like a slave. And your friendships suffer. And if you're married, maybe you don't stay married very long. If you've got kids, they start to grow up. And before you know it, they've left the house. And you're like, where was I? At least we had the Mercedes minivan. Paul says, it's not worth it. Don't sell yourselves into slavery, whether it's to an employer or to your own standards. Don't do it. Don't allow the world's expectations to control you. Jesus died to set you and me free from sin and death. He paid the ransom to secure our freedom. So don't sell yourself again, whether it's to a career or to a sinful lifestyle or to an unhealthy relationship or just doing awesome stuff all the time to the point where you're not even sure whose life you're living. Christ is your new master. That's what it means to follow him. And he is so good. In the end, Paul says, brothers and sisters, each one is to remain with God. And here's the gist of that sentence. In the calling in which you're recalled. Sometimes that, that verse has been abused to, to make people think, okay, God called you while you were a slave. Or God called you while you were whatever you were doing. Remain exactly in that social spot. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Remain in the calling in which you were called. Be in Christ. Just to clarify, this does not mean that you're supposed to stay in the same social strata or job career. After all, Paul changed vocation. 
when he met Christ, right? Peter, James, John, they were fishermen. Um, they changed their jobs. Matthew was a tax collector. Jesus says, come follow me. He leaves his booth and starts going. He's not a tax collector anymore, to my knowledge. Okay? It doesn't mean that you have to remain in the vocation you were. It doesn't mean you have to leave either. I was in the Coast Guard before I was doing this. And part of my following Jesus led me here. Um, okay, so it doesn't mean you have to stay exactly the same. What Paul is saying is remain in Christ. Recognize that what is important is not how the world's values has you ranked. The most important calling is that Jesus has chosen you and calls you his own. And there's one last thing I'm going to add here. And that is the fact that a lot of the Bible says stuff like this. And a lot of pastors, and I in particular, say this stuff all the time. Jesus loves you. Very true. Um, you're, you're equally valuable to Jesus no matter what job you have, or what career you have, or what you drive, or where you live, or any of those things. Whether you have kids, whether you don't have kids, whether you're married, whether you're single— Jesus loves you. I say these things all the time, but I know, because I struggle with this myself, I know that those are just words. And when we leave these four walls, we go out into a place that is teaching something completely different. And it is hard to believe, like deep down in our souls, that we really are loved by God, and that really is sufficient. Right? So I think that one thing that would really help is for us to encourage that in each other, to be the church. That's part of what the church is supposed to do, to encourage one another and to tell each other stories, to share testimony with one another around tables, around Elizabeth Station or wherever it is that you're at in your small group, in your Bible study, in your discipleship, whatever it is, be the church for one another. Be a place that... In, encourages and enforces these ideas that, no, you really are God's beloved. I really am going to invest in you and care about you no matter what. And that's going to mean also, hey, you're destroying your life. I'm going to love you enough to confront you. And I'm not going to condemn you and push you out. Right? And you're doing the same thing for me. That's, that's what it means to be the church, to walk together, to uh, to encourage the, the values of Scripture because we're not going to get it just by hearing it and then going out uh, and 99.9% .9 of the messages we hear are counter to this. It's not going to work. We are a community of the broken but healing. We are called the ones um, to be, we are called to be the ones embodying Christ who then calls others who calls others. So let us who are called by the grace of Jesus. Let us extend grace to one another and consider how we can remind each other through our words and remind each other through our deeds that each one is called, not because of what they do, but because of the God who called them. Amen? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for reaching out to us in what of, whatever state we were in, Lord. And I think about just the, so many, hundreds of different stories that are in this room of how you made yourself known to us. We cannot say it was because we were so great or that person was called because they were so wonderful. We must conclude that it is by your grace 
And Lord, we are so thankful for that. Help us, Lord, each day to walk in your grace and to encourage each other to walk in grace. Help us, Lord, to be on the alert, on the lookout for our brothers and sisters who may be putting themselves down and repeating old tapes of uh, stories that are untrue about themselves. Help us instead to, to speak truth and love and to reinforce for each one, Lord, that they are your beloved, your child, your precious one. Thank you for the church. Lord, help us to encourage one another in your spirit. Amen. Amen.